Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 35. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. We've pushed the interview previously scheduled for today to next week so we can make some room to talk about some of the big news stories that have recently surfaced. And joining us in our discussion this week is Killian Riano and Peggy Deemer of the Architecture Lobby. Peggy, we're excited that you're able to join us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a practicing architect, and I also am a professor at, at Yale University. And my theory work and my practice work has led me to the issues that really have culminated in the architecture lobby, of which Killian is a significant member. And the architecture lobby is an organization that really is arguing for the value of the profession, both within the discipline itself and outside the public. So it leads me to issues of labor, labor satisfaction, compensation, creativity, immaterial labor, all of those different issues. Excellent. Well, we're big fans of the architecture lobby here at Arconnect, as most people probably have noticed. And we have, we're currently doing a survey, which we're going to talk about a little later. But before we do that, Killian, it's great to have you join us again. It's a pleasure to be here always with, with you guys. Killian, you've gotten married since the last time we spoke to you, right? Hi, Donna. It's so nice to, to have met you in person in Indianapolis. And the next day I got married to my wonderful wife, Sukshan Hong. So thank you so much. So was that your bachelor party in Indianapolis? Exactly. And Donna was invited. It got wound. We talked all about all types of public space. Well, after finally meeting Donna in person, I can tell you that she would definitely be a good person to invite to any bachelor party. <laughs> As, as a friend, not as a... Uh, <laughs> as a performer? No. no. <laughs> well. I'm old, trust. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's great to have you guys on the show. You know, as many of our listeners are aware, we recently launched a survey co-hosted by Arconnect and the Architecture Lobby to gauge the level of job satisfaction among architects. And for those of uh, our listeners that haven't filled it out yet, please go ahead and, and do that. We're going to talk a little bit more about this survey. Maybe you guys can talk about how the idea of this survey came about. I can I can jump in here. When when we started the architecture lobby, we realized that if we were going to kind of represent the profession and the discipline, we probably need to do it accurately. And so we did our own very comprehensive survey. Embedded in that was an idea that maybe we could really do a wall of fame where where really good practices were put forward and could be celebrated. But the survey morphed into something maybe more comprehensive and I know, maybe more scientific. And that aspect of it was lost. So we got a lot of data, but in some way we lost the main thrust of the questions, which are now the thrust of the questions that, that we're putting into this survey, which is just general self-satisfaction, sense of control that you have within it. And we're incredibly thankful to Arconnect for co-producing this so that we can just get it out there. Well, we're really excited about it because I think this is something that people don't talk about too much. And I can see the answers already coming in. And there's some really great insight into where people are at offices. One of the things I was noticing that was kind of a, uh, we, we weren't too sure about including it in the survey was um, asking people to include the firm names. What do you guys think the, uh, the importance of, of that is in, in this survey? What is our intention in uh, asking for that information? For me, it's really it's really the opportunity to celebrate firms that are really good in terms of how they respect their employees, how they honor work-life balance. Um, it was really one of the things that we were sad that in our own particular survey, we didn't get done. So I, I think those practices that are really positive need to get known. And so that's really the incentive for us to give those practices that maybe don't get in the magazines in the same way, but deserve the recognition can really get out there. Yeah, exactly that. And, and I think to go back to the last point, Paul, that you made, one of the things that Peggy describes going into the law school at Yale and seeing a, a list of these kind of firms that are really good about work-life balance and how important that could be for a young professional to make a decision or where to go to work. So in a way, it's, it's a way to begin to to tell people where they could go and begin to have not only a career, but also a family or pursue other interests. So I guess one thing that we should make clear is that we're not trying to create a wall of shame, you know, because I, I know that there has been a few people expressing concern about listing their firm names in conjunction with some negative feedback that they've done. I mean, this is information that I think is helpful for us to review just in, in the general kind of overview of, of this research, but we're not going to be publishing that, correct? 
No, the idea is to not include, uh, to make a, a wall of shame or to shame anyone in any particular way. And and I think to go further into that point, Paul, I think that we're looking for positive, like I, I actually love the little icons that Architect made for this because we're looking for the range of experiences in the architecture field. I think all of us that are in architecture are here because we love working in architecture. It just happens that there are some practices that have better policies around work-life issues that organize their time better, and we want to understand which ones those are. Yeah, I mean, just if if I can elaborate on that, I think that if a emerging practitioner is looking at different job offers and different opportunities and you know both of them do the kind of work that they're interested in and allow a certain creativity that supports their own work blah 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 they should know something about the other aspects of the firm and this is a way of rounding out that information I should also say that Im- embedded in that law school list that, that Killian was referring to, which really in- has motivated so much of this, is the idea that the law firms want to get on that list of which are the most family-friendly firms because they want the best and the brightest to go to them. And so the other side of this story is a certain sense of empowerment of the architects that they know that they're sought after and can ask these questions about uh, quality of life and control of their schedule, that that they shouldn't feel meek and pushy or antagonistic in any way, but there's a certain right that they have, a certain empowerment that they have. So it's a shift for that worker as well as for the employer. Peggy and Killian, how did you arrive at what essentially are the just three questions? How did you narrow the scope down to three and what was your thinking behind that? I was lying in bed and thinking... (laughs) I really wish that we had a way of of knowing very directly certain things that didn't come through in our survey. And I just very quickly identified those three, which is, well, the three that you know, the work-life balance, you know, are, are you in control of your schedule and are you well compensated? For me, those three really come from what it means to be a creative, active, empowered worker. And a lot of the work that the lobby has done around what it, what it means to do a certain kind of work. And I think control, pay and work-life balance are just the three most crucial aspects of what I think about good work and creative work. And particularly in how the questions are phrased, there are these qualitative judgments that are done by the person filling the survey, right? You're not asking for, on average, how many hours do you work a week, which I think is incredibly important because in determining that work-life balance, it is going to be specific to each person and specific to where they are in their life. So it's not so much about honing in on a core statistic for a single age group. However, it's just about that individual's experience. And and also, I'm sure like I think keeping this really short is what is so important. And I hope a lot more people do it because it would be so exciting to be able to really showcase and give special attention to those firms that really do set a good example. Absolutely. I agree. All right. Well, we're going to keep this survey up for the next few weeks, and we're hoping to collect a lot of response. There's no reason for architects out there to not take part because this is a great thing for for the industry to get more valuable insight into how people are feeling about what they're doing. Are there any other comments about this before we move on? Only to echo what you just said, that I think it's important for people to do this just so that we have a sense and we share this knowledge. So yeah, do it, do it. And just to alleviate any concerns, there's nothing to worry about with uh, sharing this information. We're not going to burn any bridges for anybody out there. There's nothing but positive results to come out of this. So let's move on to the news. This has been a very busy news week in the world of architecture. Probably the biggest news this week was the announcement of the highly anticipated selection for the Guggenheim Helsinki, which was the practice, the Paris-based practice of Moreau and Kusunoki from Paris. So, Amelia, what do you think about that? Yeah, this is was a really exciting announcement, not only because it was heavily publicized and every single stage of this competition was belabored over and argued about and highly publicized so that we had, I believe as early as December of last year, we had the six finalists. And so now, you know, like six months later, when everyone has put in their bets as to which design they thought would win, we now have this proposal that I think we can all share our own personal opinions of, of how the design actually, um, of our opinions on the design at a, at a later point. But I just think it's an exciting opportunity with this firm that was chosen, knowing that they're very young. I think both 
architects are one is um, Nicolas Moreau and Hiroko Kusunoku is um, Japanese. Nicolas Moreau is from France and they're both 35 and they're a husband wife duo. And I just think that winning a competition at this scale, obviously we'll still have to see if it actually gets built, but winning a competition at this scale is going to certainly chart a very specific course for the rest of their professional practices future. We'll have to see exactly how that goes, but it's definitely going to make a huge dent. So I'm less concerned about, you know, whether this actually happens and so much as how much it's going to affect their their firm history and what comes from them later. Well, let's hope it gets built. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I even know if, if I even like think it should be built. But um, Donna, I think you had some particular thoughts about that that you shared on the news post. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? My first concern was, was uh, because I can't help but think this way, I'm concerned about the Guggenheim. I'm concerned about the plight of precarious workers around the world. I'm concerned about over-global branding of one institution. Does Helsinki really need a Guggenheim? But once I got that out of my system and started looking at the building, I actually think this seems like a really lovely building. It seems to fit their brief that they were asking for, that it maintained the sort of views around the harbor, that it fit into the city and make some urban spaces. As someone who works in a museum, I do think this sort of internal street idea of this scheme that will allow some internal passages that could have a connection both to art and to a courtyard or to an exterior view. I think that's a really interesting approach. And it looks like a good project to me. I I was pleased to see going back and looking at the earlier posts we've had about the competition that I sort of asked at one point, I sincerely hope that we have some entries to this competition that are not just a whiz-bang image trying to to grab everyone's attention, but are very thoughtful places for people to inhabit. And I think that this winning entry actually is a very thoughtful, subtle, and very inhabitable building. So I'm actually pretty excited about it. Peggy, what are your thoughts? I I appreciate Amelia, you know, introducing this by saying that after she got over, you know, those other you know concerns, the precarious worker, the unpaid labor in these competitions, that she could look at this project in particular, but I guess I want to dwell a bit on some of those those hesitations. I think it's hard to overlook. And so when I saw the winning entry, part of me was like, this is a good one. And I have to say, I think, you know, given that there was a competition, that the jury was looking for the right thing, I think Mark Wigley really said the right thing. So and so I think all the finalists were actually provocative in some way. And this is a good one. Yes. But it continues a myth that we all have about the competitions turning our lives around. And I think as long as we hold on to that myth, we keep living, you know, the life is kind of like, I, I could get that competition tomorrow. I could get that phone call tomorrow, which keeps us perpetually in that precarious situation and our willingness to accept it. So my heart sinks when I see the continuation of this, okay, it's gone from six finalists, now it's on to a winner, now the next fight is, will it be built? Oh, man, it's it's as much heartbreak as it is excitement for that firm. <laughs> That's a lot of heartbreak for this competition, too. How many? 2,000? 1,700. 1,700. You know, I, I think that Mimi Seeger actually posted a, you know, ad loud paper on Twitter. She tweeted at Architecture Lobby, actually, something where she was saying that a $100,000 prize and a $177 million building. And like, I think we're all saying that the, what's probably most interesting about this whole thing has been the process, really. And that at the end of this process and this many people, God knows how much what the actual hours, billable hours of design talent, all for this kind of last $100,000 price, which is not even, doesn't really fit the budget and or anything else. So I think that this competition myth becomes really important. And furthermore, I, I don't know, the international spectacle of it, again, the final project looks really good, but you know, like it was expected, it was an international competition, very competent people were. Uh, entering in. And then I I went back to the, the kind of the guerrilla competition that Michael Sorkin and other people put together, the next Helsinki, and to begin to think about how even those same kind of global processes, etc., but really try to tie a lot of the buildings kind of with existing processes. And in particular, there was one that I, that I thought was funny, which is one to commemorate the welfare state of Helsinki and uh, that area still having one of the strongest welfare state uh, kind of structures in Europe. So I, I don't know, they, they, these differences and what they say. Ken, what do you think? I was thinking about this in the context of uh, NFL football stadiums. So the Guggenheim has now become the NFL of the museum industry. 
a museum industrial complex, I guess. So I, I'm trying to understand, I'd like to know what the alternatives are. Is it just handing the project to Gary and then us living with whatever uh, Gary builds? Is it this really, this horrible feeding frenzy of ambitious firms looking to make their mark and spending these ridiculous amount of hours for such a little compensation for a promise of that may never happen. So I'm curious about that. I think it is a problem. I often look at competitions and I try to find the one that fits my voice the best. And, you know, I bypass a lot of these competitions because it just doesn't, they just don't fit me. And I wonder, am I ever going to find a competition that actually, that resonates with what I want to say in architecture? And it's becoming increasingly difficult to find those. I'm wondering if competitions are the path for architects anymore, uh, or if they just become these spectacles. As for the architecture, I, I'm not really too interested in the building from a distance. I think the spaces kind of resonate very well and the way they're handled. Once you get into the interiors, they seem to make, they're much more welcoming than the building. The building isn't as approachable from a distance, but once you get inside and you start to, and you start to look at the brief a little bit more and the concept boards and you start to get the sense of materiality and the interior spaces and the glazing, it fits much better. I, I don't know why I'm having a problem with the exterior, like I said, from a distance, but um, I really like the uh, when you get inside the building. So I'm wondering whether uh, others are having a difficulty that I'm having once we talk about the building proper, which is kind of falling into the same kind of design architecture speak that I think we're generally trained in and feel comfortable in. But I, I think as soon as we talk about this, you know, we we have in the back of our head, at least I have in the back of my head, the Michael Sorkin's counter competition and, and you know the the comments that come from those who live in Helsinki that feel that this is being done to them. And, and so to elaborate specifically about the manner in which it's being done to them, the materials, feels tough, you know, even though at some point, you know, if this does get built, we're, we're going to have that opportunity again. But hard conversation to have, I think. Yeah, this is a pretty complex issue that has been debated since the announcement of the competition. So let's move on. There's been two big installations that have opened this week. Let's talk about the uh, the one closest to us here, Cosmo by Andre Hake, who we actually had on the podcast not too long ago, back in episode 18. Actually, it was was quite a while ago. Killian, I know that you attended the opening yesterday. How did it look in in person? I mean, the reality is that the, I don't know what to call it. Is it a machine? Is it, I'm not, it's not, it, it's kind of a pavilion, but in a kind of different kind of pavilion. And I think that that's the, the beautiful thing about this piece is that really kind of, it's hard for you to put your thumb in what it actually is, except that you understand and it, and, and it's yet to be proven, but you know, the promise is there that it will function as a system. It promises that it will take water and that it will begin to clean it and that the cleaning itself will then activate this bioluminescent kind of bacteria and slowly this thing will begin to glow in a quite gorgeous way. So yeah, I, and actually I also work in Long Island City So I and I get off of the train right around PS1. So I've seen it go up over the last few weeks and I got to tell you, I'm pretty impressed with it. I think it's very beautiful. Again, it's a I'm not sure what to call it. It's more like a machine than not. Uh, Jack himself yesterday basically maybe called it that it's an experiment of thinking about infrastructure and how more human the infrastructure could be. Of course, then there's the, the questions of if that is the case, then, you know, how much water can actually this type of new infrastructure handle? How does it even relate to its context? You know, it's very, and, and this is too much to ask for the thing, but, you know, just kind of you begin to ask some questions. The PS one is next to one of the most polluted waterways in the country, Dutch kills, etc. So this is a beautiful almost argument to make about uh, infrastructure and a lot of the concerns that a lot of people are having right now around environmental design. But the question is, how could then this either be more performative and actually begin to deal with some of the real issues or be more of the, and then the, the, he finished yesterday by saying these words. This is political. Let's go party. <laughs> and then the question is, is the tension in those two, two kind of sentiments is one that, that is lived in the structure pretty well. But one wonders how much is the party? How much is the political? What does it even mean to be political, especially with the droughts and other water issues we're going to have? Killian, did you happen to go see Work Architecture Company, Work AC's installation, Public Farm one when they were when they won? This was years ago. I'm just looking it up. It was 2008. Yes, did. So this, and did you get the same sense of it as being 
a sort of critique of infrastructure and how buildings can serve more than one purpose. Do you see any similarities between those two? I don't know. I mean, yes. And, you know, uh, there was a little bit of discussion around that yesterday. A few of us were having uh, with that one and even so ills, although so ills was not didn't have the environmental argument that these two are having and they, they they've been trying to really go at with the last few ps1 entries so yeah no i think that that there is some similarities the uh, the one thing about this one which could be pretty interesting to see in comparison to pf1 is that pf1 was meant to be truly kind of inclusive you were going into it and you were i mean as in like interactive not inclusive interactive uh, you were gonna go up into it and you played with the thing i'm not 100 percent sure how much you can play with Cosmo. Cosmo might be like a beautiful little thing you observe change over time. Killian, I love that you mentioned his parting comment. It's political, let's party. Because I think not necessarily particular to the warm-up series, but in a lot of these scenarios or these um, events that are based around a kind of one indicative performative project where the project conveys an idea of either like a, a new treatment of infrastructure or some type of novel, potentially world improving solution to something, but in a way that is so yeah based on performance and attracting a certain group of people to a space to effectively just have fun. Those things are, I'm always a little bit concerned about how those two things like rub up against each other and what actually ends up getting made out of it. Because when we spoke to Andreas and like, he was so, so fascinating and he had some really interesting ideas. Ideas and based on his previous work of how to engage people in these political scenarios around architecture that I thought were really effective. But then when I see it in this partnering scenario and this, in these kinds of events and like based on basically a, a party structure, I'm thinking like, well, what what is actually going to happen out of this? Like, are we suddenly going to get prototyping happening of like new infrastructural paradigms where we can both create it as a piece of art and also a piece of like treasured city operating system, basically? How does this actually like go on later? That's kind of when I see these pavilions and I see the kind of conventions that they're built around, I get a little bit, yeah, I get this funky feeling in my stomach. Ken, do you have any thoughts on this project? Well, I mean, I think to that, my my one question is, is that... Um, when Killian said uh, it's political, let's party. I mean, it's almost like the construction of it was the culmination of the was like the pinnacle of the event, not the actual the working of it. Which to me seems like the point of the uh, of the piece is it's actually a working. It's a machine, like Killian said, it's a machine, and just fabricating it and lifting it into place doesn't seem to me demonstrate the actualization of the machine itself. I mean, the robot hasn't spoken. It hasn't moved. It hasn't done anything yet. And I would imagine that it would take some time for this process to work its magic so that you get some realization out of it. But so I'm just curious, did you get to see anything happen with this, Killian, or was it just the raising of the barn, so to speak, and that was it? Let's party. Uh, well, you know, this event, and, and I have gone to these uh, kind of like opening things a couple of times, and it usually is like more like a, that we're done, it's time to like talk about it and party. So it's hard to see. And I think that the proof for this one is going to be a little bit over time and um, see what happens. It did rain. So you could begin to see the system kind of try to deal with this extra water, which uh, as far as I understand, it was meant to try to do. But given that, you know, the tubes where the water moves are so small and it's so hard to see many things. The reality is that I personally didn't see anything happen. Yet while the machine, the thing looks like it is constantly moving. And I wanted to complicate this by saying by two things which uh, I were talked about at least in, in the with a few people that I interacted. Number one is the comparison with his Scaravox in Madrid which is a quite a beautiful you know project that, and, and it seems more heavily inclined towards the programmatic while this one seems kind of again this one is almost an object to look at and be at all. And the second thing is the background. <laughs> the, the one thing that has happened with the PS1 is that now the backdrop of, of cost is this brutalist new housing uh, next to where Five Points used to be. And in the back, you see this new housing complex, luxury housing complex with windmill, windmills on top. These gorgeous done windmills, uh, you know, but still it's a luxury housing. So a couple of things that were said is one is that comparison and, and, and given uh, Jack's work and track record, that very much kind of on the ground and, and allowing multiple readings. This one also has a multiple reading, but in that case, multiple uses also of the thing 
this Caravox with quite gorgeous, but also the anxiety, I think to go back a little bit to Amelia's point, of what these events are doing in the larger social political context in which they're inhabiting uh, a wildly changing Long Island City, part of a wildly changing New York, and that these kind of almost kind of eco-political moves seem more like to reinforce the, the, the kind of dynamics of change as they are now rather than to question them. Well, I'm curious to see how it ends up functioning, since functionality seems to be quite a big part of this project. Yeah, and especially comparing it to a machine, Killian, which I think is totally spot on, that this is like an aestheticized process, an aestheticized machine that kind of loses a little bit of that quality and content and and trust that we can have in it if it doesn't actually function. What I imagine in an ideal scenario is like, you know, the overheated summer attendee getting a uh, giant cooler full of Cosmo filtered water dumped on them because they need to cool off and both warm up at the same time. And there's mixed messages about what temperature it should be, but you get to directly benefit from the product of the machine. And that is like, that would be like the final present from the event that would totally drive home the project. But if it doesn't, if it can't deliver on that effect, it can't just exist by itself as a pavilion. It kind of has to do that extra step. Yeah. It seems like it just becomes a symbol. Right. Well, Peggy, do you have something to add? I feel generally positive about all of the PS1 in installations, whether they live up to their claim or not. I know there's been a lot of criticism of their being actually exploitive and, you know, the the lack of money and the support and whatever. But I still think it's a really amazing opportunity for young practitioners, all practitioners, to see another kind of practice which isn't client-driven. And and I know that this is an artificial scenario when it's supported in your, your particular place, it's given to them, whatever. But I still think it serves a really important function for us practitioners. And we shouldn't condemn it for failing in either the MoMA's enterprise or the particular entrance. I still think there's a lot that we gain as, a, as another model. So... I just want to put in a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All of our criticisms are done from the far edge of California. So we're and we also had a <laughs> had a great time talking to Andres. And we know that like we're very much impressed with all of his other work. And it's I think you're, you're totally right that at least having this access to that kind of practice is something that we shouldn't take for granted. And can I just add that that I totally agree with Peggy and, the, you know, but the beautiful thing is that the, these practitioners put something. This is an argument they put forth because of the lack of. And, and as an argument, it's great because, uh, and his specifically, really beautiful, really compelling piece. And one of them, one like I said, multiple readings and complex and truly because of that, even if, let's say, didn't work, et cetera, at least in its, in, in its own failure, it could uh, spur some really interesting conversations. Well, let's jump across the pond now to a fairly similar in many ways pavilion that has just opened at the Serpentine Gallery. The pavilion this year is by Selgas Kano, which uh, I may not be pronouncing correctly. Killian, you could correct me if I'm wrong. Is that correct pronunciation? I not knowing it sounds right. Selgas Kanos. So yeah, that just opened the other day. What are everyone's thoughts on that? Killian, have you looked at the pavilion? Well, <laughs> this one, I didn't get a chance to go inside or do anything. But I mean, you know, just looking at it from outside and and, and the one similarity see between the two is kind of this very playful and colorful thing. And also almost it feels like it's active. And we go back to this uh, this thing where it almost feels like the pavilion itself wants to aestheticize the amount of kind of movement or process or think something happening inside, whether it's even a structural system. It, it, it shows it very proudly. It complicates it. It adds more. There's also something about these bubbles. And it might be because along with some of the architecture lobby things we're doing, we've been talking about a lot of cryptocurrency and kind of this new trend to go with currency and economic systems to use fear theory is Lutterite's fear theory that when I look at this I kind of see a little bit of an aestheticization of these kind of different bubbles and political moments with their ruptures but it's it's quite beautiful. I love that reading Killian I'm super impressed I just I'm overwhelmed by just the colors. But Peggy, you had something to add? 
Well, I just wonder whether anyone else there wonders what the role of the serpentine is at this point. I look at this and think, oh, yeah, wow, um, interesting material, interesting colors. I wish I could see it. I wish I experienced it. But I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to evaluate it. And, you know, if it's a display of a major architect to show what they can do when they don't have a client and they're not you know, with big budgets and they can be playful and whatever, it's like, okay, that's, that's an opportunity to see how they, you know, take advantage of this opportunity. But, but beyond that, or even if that, I'm just confused about what it is we're supposed to learn um, with these pavilions, and particularly this one, which I think is playful slash irrelevant. <laughs> but I'm curious to know how, how others you know, think about the larger enterprise. Well, perhaps it's a little bit cynical, and I've also not personally visited the site, so please anyone jump in who has who might have a more situated opinion. But I just think of this as knowing the program being they want to create a space for socializing, kind of like up to socializing, as well as access for seating and like kind of to play into a cafe scenario. And this form does that in a very non-intuitive way. It's kind of like you have to travel to the intersection point of what I can kind of see as like a X-shaped four tunnels kind of meeting in the center space. And then suddenly you have in the midst of this iridescent caterpillar, chrysalis, whatever, you have all these chairs. And I assume that the main intention here is really just to create a shiny thing, either like conceptually or actually to get people to just hang out there. And then, you know, having it be sponsored by the Serpentine, get them eventually into the galleries. But I really just see it as like, you know, a, a piece of tinfoil for people to see in the glittering in the light and then go and check out and then stay the time. And maybe that's overly simplistic or simply just, yeah, I'm not sure. But that's kind of the impression that I just get of this overall initiative. I think it's not simplistic at all. And it's, I think it's very sympathetic. I, I guess I'm just curious to know what it means for the lay person to see this, not, not just as an individual experience, but the message about architecture or architects to a lay public, mm. you know, what, what the intention is. I'm, I'm curious about how to read it that way. Yeah, it seems like due to the, the highly public nature and the prominence of this yearly competition, it seems like Serpentine Gallery kind of does have the responsibility to maybe make it a little bit more meaningful than it has been. You know, maybe it started out as just simply a pavilion to host events, but, you know, there is an opportunity now to engage more at a deeper level with the public and, and how it interacts and perceives architecture with this pavilion. Donna, did you have something to say? Yeah, you know, I think I agree with all of these comments. And I think that this, that pavilion programs in general can work on many, many levels. And certainly it's up to us as architects to make sure that the general public is learning something from them and not just coming and saying, oh, this is cool. Although sometimes you do just need to have that a level of engagement with someone. I felt like this Serpentine Pavilion just is delightful in part because I feel like it is not a sort of serious explanation of any one designer's theoretical intent. It may very well sum up this firm's theoretical intents. And Killian, the way that you pronounce their name was so much better than I will be able to, but Zelgas Kano. It may very well sum up a lot of their work, but to me, it's just delightful to engage with. And I love that it seems a little bit non-serious after we've had some very serious pavilions in the Serpentine. Zumthor's was very serious. And I think even Frank Gehry's in a lot of ways was very serious. But I also wanted to point out an article that Justine Testato posted on Arconnect. She pointed to an article by Oliver Wainwright that it asks the question, what happens to these pavilions every year after they're finished? And that goes completely to the other extreme of not just visitors to the park who maybe don't know anything about architecture or aren't interested in architecture, but people who actually collect architecture. So we're talking about this very rarefied group of people who can collect a building as if it's art. And many of them, it sounds like, are in storage. They've been broken down and they're in pieces and parts that are in storage. And I'll just relate the story of uh, an exhibit I worked on in Philadelphia at the Jewish Y, curated by Cheryl Hart. Harper, that was a, a survey of very, very early contemporary works coming in the 1960s to Philadelphia from New York. And one of the pieces was a storefront piece by Christo, one of his very early installations in a gallery that had been in storage for 25 years, 30 years before we were able to pull it out of storage and put it back up again. And it had this amazing effect as a piece that had been stored and then brought back out into the light. And so I'm, I'm curious about these pavilions as these old ones that are maybe now stored somewhere and that, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we could pull them out and say, oh, aren't those amazing and quaint at the same time. So I, I think there are a lot of different issues around the whole notion of pavilion 
guardians and temporary works. But overall, Peggy, I would go back to your comment about PS1 that, you know, giving young architects an opportunity to do some experimenting without the constraints of a client so firmly implanted, I think that can lead to the generation of interesting ideas frequently. And that on that level, they're very, very good. Just to dive in there quickly, I think if I'm hesitant and a little bit skeptical about this pavilion or the Serpentine, it's definitely in relationship to, to PS1, where I think there's a demand for those students not just to have not client-driven work, but to do something that is ecologically, materially, socially, infrastructurally significant. So part of it is the difference in what's being asked for. So, yeah. You know, when I look at this project and I look at the renderings and uh, the kind of candy coated or cotton candy feel of the pavilion it would be tragic if adults actually went in here it would be tragic <laughs> if, if, i mean i look at this and i think wow my niece and nephew would be have a, would have a great time or my younger nieces and nephews would have a fantastic time and then i think about well these are architects and then this is a, a gallery and then they're going to be wanting to touch stuff and then there's going to be some security guards standing there saying stand five feet away from the wall and then there's a kid that's going to want to climb on the outside i mean it would be tragic if adults were somehow engaged in this and this wasn't just relocated to a playground and let kids climb all over this. You know, it seems to be an attractor for it. It just, I mean, that's the cynical part of me saying that it would be awfully nice if this was um, just off limits to adults and relegated to children to kind of engage with and make space from. That would have social commentary. That would be cool. <laughs> well, I don't know if the Serpentine is trying to drive in some new direction with this, because when you look at the prior pavilions, it's like, I believe, a 15-year history, I think the most colorful one, it just had red. And that was the most diverse in terms of the color palette. And this is just like, not only much more immediately aesthetically vibrant and different than the previous pavilions, but also just really a totally different scheme. It's less about like centering in on this like one emergent presence of like, like a pavilion or a stage or something like that. And more just like, yeah, Ken, like a, creating that feeling that you have when you're six years old and you're going underneath a colorful, what was that, tent game or something like that, where you have a parachute and you go underneath it and the, suddenly all the right, colors right. are different. Like it's much less about having like a, a stage, I feel, which I think I, I got the impression from the prior pavilions that kind of make the social experience into something like that. Well, I'll direct everybody back to the Archonnect website and take a look at the photographs. And what you see is kind of what I'm afraid of. You see these two architects very stiffly standing in the space, uh, not engaging, not touching anything, which is kind of how I think I would feel in there. I would be, you know, looking at the detailing, kind of like inquisitively um, pointing at things and showing people stuff and doing my architecty thing, not wanting to touch anything because I know how delicate things are. And then there's one photo where you have all these very formal, like seating arrangements sitting like 60 feet away from the pavilion. I'm going, yeah, that's where the adults should be. 60 feet away from it. So there's this lack of engagement. There's this tactility. There's this response that I want to see. There's something I want to respond to very physically. And like in a, you know, one of those inflated balloon things that you see at kids' parties where you're jumping up and down in them. And I see those two architects standing there and they're like, they're almost pseudo security guards kind of like, and you know, at the beginning of the pavilion. And I, I want to banish them from the space. <laughs> Well, I'll just add one technical detail is that all of these photos were taken before the public opening occurred. So these photos and these, which we took both from Douglas Cano's own permission and also fewer from Instagram, they're all taken from like the, exactly that, like the adults opening the formal press opening preview. press preview of the event. And so, and this is a social space and it is a public space for people to come to. So we'll still have to see exactly how all ages and all groups come in and, and encounter the space. But Killian, you had something to add? This is maybe a little bit of a weird kind of observation, but I think going off of Ken's idea of having kids kind of running around, that there's something interesting about this pavilion, this, which the sense is that it wasn't designed by any one person, but rather that it somehow grew over time, which I think goes back to my initial comment about a series of bubbles that somehow found a way and connected to another one. But in that, and I think that the image that Ken was asking us to look at, then and it begins to question the whole thing. It's almost like is design is designing the look of something a little more precarious. And I don't know, I'm not sure if I have anything deeper to say than that, but except that I find Ken's idea, if the kids were given the rope and then allowed to run around and build a new section, that is when I think this thing would be yeah. really, really exciting. Yeah. 
Well, I'd also like to go back to Ken's comments. You know, this project reminds me a lot of the Architects of Air inflatable architecture uh, installation that's been traveling around the world. When it was in Los Angeles back in December of 2013, a bunch of us from Arconnect went to go on a uh, press preview of it. And there was uh, halfway through the preview, the public came in and there were a lot of kids and a lot of adults. And one thing I noticed was that this amazing space that was created using air and translucent, colorful fabric just kind of made children of everybody. There were a lot of kids trying to climb up the sides and, you know, people, the security were telling kids to come down. But everyone was had this kind of awe, you know, walking around this space. And it was really nice to see how this inflatable form of architecture that was kind of unusual to everyone just created this really fun, almost childlike feeling among the crowd. So I wouldn't say that it's just for kids. I think that it's something that could bring everybody back to that kind of childlike state. Can I just say, I, for me, you know, listening to this conversation, what I've come to enjoy and, and realize listening to you is that if I'm looking in some way for a critical aspect to this building or, you know, the Serpentine projects in general, this really does do it by being the anti-pavilion, by not being a singular space, by not having the materials and not having the scale. And all of this talk about it being childlike, I think, speaks to its anti-pavilion character, which really is pretty good. I mean, I think that's a critical project that I'm interested in. Perhaps in that this one particular serpentine, because of the seriousness, maybe feels a little bit more like a PS1, especially an early PS1. Yeah, hmm. yeah, that's no, interesting. Ben. Well, while we're in the UK, we'll move on to our next story, which has to do with the Robin Hood Gardens and Richard Rogers' recent comment that, that it should be saved from demolition. In response, the residents have dared Lord Richard Rogers to spend a night in the building. What do you guys think about this? <laughs> Ken, sounds like you have something to say. Oh, I, th I think he should stay a night in the building. Um, but it, it doesn't, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't prove anyone's point that, you know, it's not the architect's fault that this building is falling into disrepair. And it's problematic when, when you see the comments and talk about the difficulty of the building. Why would anyone design a building like this? Not thinking, of course, that cultures change over time and things that worked 40 or 50 years ago may not work today. So maybe that's the problem with, you know, I, but maybe he should stay in the building. If he wants to save it, maybe he should stay there and, and experience what some of the tenants are experiencing. Is there any legal obligation for him to do that? <laughs> like, Unless only if it's haunted. Right, exactly. He has a, or he has a fortune to collect. Does anybody else have any feelings about this news? I just think it's fabulous that it's happening, that it becomes a kind of public dialogue. I think what Ken says is absolutely right, you know, that that there is no right and no wrong here, but that's exactly why it's so interesting. And the fact that the architect would have to think through the living quality of this and that the tenant would have to debate the quality of maintenance and the, you know, the quality of historical preservation. I just love that this is going on. So I think it's hot. It's good. Yeah, all I wanted to do is echo a little bit what Peggy was saying. And also, you know, I love this building. I mean, the Smithsons are really one of the inspirations, etc. But I also feel for the residents. I happened when I lived in Cambridge, I lived in, in Peabody Terrace by CERT, a building that is an idea I enjoyed as a building, like I'm super happy it exists. But living there drove me nuts. The ceilings I could touch just by like kind of lightly raising my hand. And so, I don't know, I think this whole conversation and it's one that architects actually quite honestly, like like maybe Peggy saying, should welcome that conversation and critically thinking of explaining to the public why these buildings matter, why these ideas matter. Even if maybe it, because of maintenance or sometimes even design, they may not have been executed to a degree that sometimes is even comfortable to live in. Basically, we need to be welcome the, the critique without taking it personally and be able to engage in it. And hopefully also in the way, save a couple of these kind of buildings that are being threatened. I totally agree. I think that's really well said. Well, the interesting thing about this building in terms where I live in Minneapolis, Riverside Plaza. Um, was a was a project that was seen by the community. And in fact, they call it Little Mogadishu. So they've got a, a lot of horrible names for this building here. But a developer bought it, got tax credits, got some, um, I think some 
some preservation money. Um, I think the city and the state has kicked in. I think sometimes governments rely on the fact that they're going to pull away funding. They're going to let the, these buildings, these public housing projects fall into disrepair. And then they're going to create this firestorm from the citizens that are the people that live in these buildings. And they ultimately knock it down and they put up things that the new people can't afford to live in. So then you push these people out of the way. And it's, I think it's a nice tactic that governments uh, would tend to use. But in Minneapolis, they've actually been able to save these rough wraps and buildings. And I love the buildings. I don't live in them. My ex-wife used to travel them for doing census work. I heard some stories about, you know, the difficulties with the elevators. But, you know, they're great buildings in the skyline. They're very colorful. And now that, you know, local governments are paying attention to it. And there's actually developers actually responsibly restoring the buildings. So it can be done. It just requires an honest public-private partnership. And it doesn't seem like there is one in place for the Robin Hood Tower. So. All right. Well, that's our overview of the news this week. Let's move on to endorsements. Amelia, I know that you have an endorsement. I do. I have what I hope is not too dry of an endorsement, but it comes from the EU Parliament. There's a decision that was coming up for a vote about how we decide to protect the copyright of buildings in the public space. There's this particular set of conventions around copyright law called Freedom of Panorama, which this great article in Ars Technica goes pretty deep into. And there's also a couple of posts on um, Wikipedia's community publication about the history of Freedom of Panorama and what it kind of says about copyright law. Freedom of Panorama is basically the the ability for people to take photos or to create images of buildings or pieces of art in the public space, even if those buildings or pieces of art have copyright specifics around them saying you can't recreate images of them. So, you know, if you take a picture of Anish Kapoor's bean in Millennium Park or such, you're allowed to do that and share it with someone, even though there might be other conventions around the uh, around the piece of art. So, I just think that this was a fascinating article because it points towards a very specific vote that's coming up in EU Parliament that may get rid of this right to freedom of panorama that is enforced in a varying degrees in different EU countries. But I just think that, you know, kind of going into these decisions a little bit more deeper and seeing how they're discussed on a governmental level and on a policy level is really enlightening. And it also gives me a lot of empathy <laughs> towards the legislation of different copyright laws. I just think like this is already such a complex issue and to try to understand on a national level how you treat your objects of like public pride and also public cultural value. I just went down a real rabbit hole trying to figure out exactly how that should be treated. So the article in particular on Arcanact is from Ars Technica about freedom of panorama in the EU, and we'll include it in our show notes. So Ken, what did you have to endorse this week? I was uh, looking at the uh, hipster gentrification piece on the on the website, and I'm interested in that piece. And in light of my recent visit to uh, New Jersey, I was happening, uh, happened to drive around to see what changed. Um, I haven't been back there in a couple of years and I've been away for about almost 10. And uh, one of the things I realized is that the, one of the towns that nobody would want to go to and nobody wanted to live on the Jersey Shore for the longest period of time was Asbury Park. It kind of fell into tremendous disrepair, a lot of crime. And now if you go there, it's probably, it used to be Red Bank, New Jersey was the popular and uh, place to hang for the well-to-do in on the Jersey Shore. Now it's become Asbury Park. Places that now see families, you would never would have seen families uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So it's interesting to see this piece come up in light of what's happening back home in uh, New Jersey. I think the forces are very different, though, in um, Asbury Park than in Brooklyn, I think. The, the dynamics at work are a little bit different, but it's still uh, gentrification nonetheless. And I think we, we've talked about this before in the past. I think gentrification, it, it's kind of a localized term. It depends on what people in that community feel it means. So it's not something that you can kind of globally kind of drop a label on and make it seem like it, all gentrification is the same. So this particular news piece was uh, interesting for me. Donna, what about you? Uh, I have two endorsements that are related. I want to endorse... Alexander Lang, who is a writer and architecture critic who I follow on Twitter and really enjoy her take on all things architecture and design related. And I just happened to go see her give a talk last night in Columbus, Indiana, where she was talking about her work with the Alexander Gerard Archives. And she's doing an exhibit on the Gerard Archives that will be at Vitra next year, I think, and then it's traveling to the U.S. But she was specifically in Columbus also to look, of course, at the Miller House Archives, which Alexander Gerard was, was an architect, but also mostly did all of the interior design at the Miller House. Coincidentally, and this is my second endorsement, the Indianapolis Museum of Art has been digitizing all of the Miller House 
archives, which is over 17,000 pieces of correspondence, drawings, fabric samples, everything related to the construction of the Miller House. This project, I have to say, was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities that was given to the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And the archives are now online. The announcement today came out that the, the archiving is complete. And the online version is called Documenting Modern Living. It's a Tumblr collection. And I have posted it on Archonnect before. It's so much fun to read the correspondence, especially between Saarinen and Erwin Miller. And there's one great letter where Miller does a little sketch of the Miller House under construction and there are no workers there. And it says, this is what I see. And then under that, there's a sketch with the house, but covered in little workers, people building it. And it says, this is what I want to see. So I think even going back to the most master, the biggest, most important masterpieces of of residential design, you have problems with the contractors not being there as often as the architect and the client would both like them to be. So it's a great little archive though. And it's exhaustive. Every bit of every color in every rug and every paint swatch. And for people who are fans of architectural archives, the documenting modern living is a fantastic one. So two endorsements this week, the writing of Alexander Lang and the documenting modern living Tumblr. Peggy, what do you have to endorse with us? Just in news in general, I just think it was kind of amazing to read that the federal labor laws, the Fair Labor Standard Act, was proposing raising the amount of money which would allow somebody to qualify for overtime pay to raise it above twenty three thousand six hundred sixty six per year. I believe by you know up, up to a, a third um, or or double that. But it's just news. It's good news for all of us who work overtime, and you know that that we. We will now be able to qualify much more legally and and with real knowledge behind us. So it's good. Definitely. Thanks for bringing that one up. Killian, how about you? I have a couple of things. I I have been a little bit uh, thinking about and a little bit obsessed about um, a review of Mad Max Fury Road by Mackenzie Work. Uh, I don't want to really spoil the movie or anything for anyone, but I will say that Mackenzie and and for it's housed in Mackenzie Work's own website slash blog, uh, which is publicseminar.org. It was uh, done back last month in May, so you'll probably find Fury Road. It's just called Fury Road. But in it, he basically begins to see the movie as an allegory of what it means to be political today and uh, a little bit of a rebuke of utopianism, but at least a kind of utopianism that ignores the larger systems of oppression and tries to recreate kinder systems that the movie is arguing that we need to confront those systems of, uh, of oppression or whatever and take over the infrastructure for that include resources. So in a way, with all the reading I've been doing, including some of the work uh, by people like Chantal Mouffe, etc., it really fits well as an allegory of what it means to be a political uh, agent today, a political being. The second thing, and this is going to be a shout out to some of the things that are happening in the architecture lobby itself. One of our members, Matt Laurie, uh, has been really bringing up a theorem and kind of new ways of thinking and looking at economic systems. And there's still the question of whether they're actually new and whether they how fair, etc. There's some questions, right? But Keller Easterling on Eflux wrote a really interesting essay. It's called IIRS. Uh, on eflux.com and it's kind of fascinating because you know and quite honestly I'm still going reading through it but and I'm not even 100% sure I understand Ethereum just yet but yeah in her essay she begins to make connections between economy space and the way that space could be a way to think about value and labor Besides that, I wanted to thank Archonnect for working with us on, on the survey, for having us here today. I want to encourage anyone that hasn't gone to the Architecture Lobby's website or anything to join us. We have some very active student chapters in many schools. We're currently like looking for people to begin and look at city chapters and other ways to get involved. So uh, not to be self-promotional, but rather to like ask people to join us in solidarity as we look at questions of labor in the larger practice. Thank you. Well, it was a real pleasure having you, Killian, and Peggy on the show with us. I hope we can have you back again soon. I would also like to second your endorsement for the survey, just to remind people this is this is a good thing. We're not going to be calling anybody out. We're going to hopefully be able to highlight some of the firms out there that are doing really good work for their employees, providing really good work environments, and adding to the overall 
mission of the Architecture Lobby, which is improving the condition for architects around the country and around the world. So thanks to everybody for listening. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for us, you can reach us on Twitter with hashtag Archonnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at Archonnect.com. And if you subscribe to the podcast and you enjoy it, we'd love for you to subscribe on uh, iTunes and post a review or, or a rating. And definitely uh, look into Architecture Lobby more if you're just learning about it on this show. And stay tuned on Archonnect for more information about Architecture Lobby and the survey and all kinds of news like what we just discussed today. So thanks again. And we'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks for joining us this week, you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. No, a real pleasure. Thank you all. Thanks. Have a great week, everyone. You too. Thanks, Killian. Thanks, Peggy.